0: Right on. So we've actually managed to finish up chapter 4 last time. It took us like, what, two months, three months? Maybe a little longer? I don't know. But we're getting into the fun part. Everybody knows this one. This is the most known part of Micah probably, right? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, right? Yes, everyone knows this. We read it every Christmas. So we're getting into that section now. So we're still in the uh, message of hope that Micah provides. As a matter of fact, if you remember how we went through and broke down Micah, this was the center of Micah, the central focus of, of the book. And it being the central focus of the book, it is also broken down. At least this oracle is broken down chiastically as well. And inside of this, there are other chiasms. It's very interesting we to look at forms of text, so we'll go through that, talk about that. Uh, There's some difficult parts of it, and there's some parts that I think we should all understand. Having an advantage to the hearers of the day, right? We we have the ability to look back so we can understand what's being said, whereas those who received it from Micah's day, you know, this is pre- Nebuchadnezzar pre exile, they didn't have that benefit. And what does Peter say? Even the prophets right, tried to see what they were talking about. But, anyways, let's pray and then we'll jump into our text. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we always do, we thank you, Lord, that we could come together and gather as your people to worship you, Lord God, to learn. Uh, From you and of you, Father, we pray that as we look into your word, you would guide us, teach us, help us to uh, understand what it is you're saying uh, to what you did say to uh, the people of Micah's day and what you're saying to us today, Father God. We pray that uh, as we read that you would indeed illumine our hearts through the power of your spirit, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So reading this section... I'm tempted to just read all of chapter 5 for context. Well, I, if I do that though, I'd have to read chapter 4 as well. <laughs> <You> know, <'cause, laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Well, context is important, you know. But we'll just read our, our text, what we're going to be talking about. And then, to provide context, we could go backwards and forwards, okay? So let's do it that way. <clears throat> so, now muster your troops. O daughter of troops, as it says. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Then the rest of his brothers shall return uh, to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now, normally we stop at the part where it says, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and begin with, but you, O Bethlehem. But the the whole oracle is from 1 to 6 here. As a matter of fact, I think in other Bibles, and I know in the Septuagint, as it's broken down, and in the Jewish-type Bibles, one is really 4.14. But um, this oracle is separate from the last, even though they are directly tied together. Now, looking at this whole thing, this whole oracle from five one two to 6, it is set up chiastically, right? And, and there's, a, there's a strong inclusio that's included here. So we know that this is a single oracle, right? The inclusio, uh, who remembers what an inclusio is? I should probably... It, st- it does include, but, but, but what is it? It's like the last statement that it wraps up everything before? No, no, no. An, an inclusio is um, a literary device that unites a passage with a phrase or a word used at the beginning and a word used at the end. And everything there in between, it acts as a bracket, everything there in between is part of the same idea or the same context, right? So with the use of this strong inclusio that Micah uses here, we know that this is one oracle, right? And that word, and it's only a word, but it's used uh, seldomly here in Micah and it's used uh, in this particular instance, and it's a, how do I put it, it's emphasized. So let's look at let the, the inclusive here. Now muster you your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, All right? He includes himself in this group now. Siege is laid against us. And then in verse 6, what we have, he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. So the use of the word us there brackets this, making this a single Oracle here. Now, let's look at the chiastic structure of this text. Who remembers what a chiasm is? This one, everyone should know, right? Anybody? What's that? Right A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, right? So, so it's basically you have an idea at the beginning and that's just shared idea at the end, and then another idea further down, the pericope, and another idea that's shared with that one further up the pericope, right? So you're working in a funnel shape, right, towards a central idea. So let's look at how this is divided up chiastically, right? So A would be, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us, right? And we know because of our inclusio the common idea that we have here, a prime would be, and he shall deliver us from uh, the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. See the siege laid against them? And then you have a, the idea of deliverance from that siege that's laid against them when the Assyrians are in their land. All right, so you have A and A prime. Now B, uh, with a rod or a scepter, that's really what it would be. It's a rod of rule. The, the word could be translated or should be translated as scepter. You know? to create the idea of this being a rod of rule, something a king would hold in his hand, right? With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, right? And B prime, they shall shepherd the land of Israel with the sword and the land of Nimron at its entrances. Now, what's significance about this, why this is united? Uh mine just went blank, sorry, (laughs) the Assyrians struck the ruler of Israel on the cheek with a scepter. And so the contrasting idea is they will rule, shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, right? So you have them being struck with a rod and then turning around and and ruling Assyria with the sword, right? So we have B and B prime. Now let's look at C and C prime here. Okay, so But you, O Bethlehem and Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Right? We have this idea of a ruler of Israel coming forth from God. Now, let's look at C-prime. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds or rulers and eight princes of men. So you have this one ruler coming from God to govern Israel. And then from Israel, you have eight princes ruling Assyria. See, So you have that shared idea. Now, let's look at D and D prime. Uh, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. All right, so you have this idea of... Them being given up. And here it's more of a contrasting idea. God giving them up until the time. And then you have the idea again of labor and birth pangs. And uh, the contrasting idea here is, and he shall be their peace. That would be your D prime there, the beginning of verse 5. And uh, the reason it's contrasting, obviously labor is not a time of peace, is it? No, it's a very strong time of peace. conflict or um, distress. Right? That's the idea that's presented. And then uh, by contrast, and he shall be their peace, the one who comes from that labor. Now I had a little bit of a hard time uh, dividing this one up because I could have, when I did this, when I was looking at this text and like thinking about it, uh, I could have continued on from there. Uh, therefore He shall give them up until the time uh, when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And then, I could have made that one section, and then use this. And they shall dwell secure from now on. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. But I figured it would be better to break it down even further, because the ideas were so stark, so contrasting. So let's look at E and E prime here. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And they shall dwell secure from now for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So you have the idea of all the people returning to the land, right? All all of the all of the Messiah's brethren coming back to the land, and then you have the idea of them dwelling securely and that Messiah being great, to the ends of the earth. Now, what's the central focus of this, no matter which way you want to break it down? This is the centerpiece of it. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So that's the center of this um, oracle that Micah provides. This messianic text is... The, the focus of it is this, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So the Messiah's rule, the Messiah's uh, coming, and what he does in this world is all done in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The, the Messiah's rule and God's name and majesty are directly and intimately tied together all right now that's what uh, the people of Micah's day would have seen all right they would have been able to understand that yes okay we have a Messiah who's promised who's going to come and his rule is going to establish to the ends of the earth the majesty of God right I mean those great and many precious promises that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, right? That is a product of the Messiah's rule. All right, so now let's look at the text, going through it verse by verse, and we'll get into the other chiasm as we go. Right? The other chiasm that appears in this text is uh, verses 5 and 6. And that's actually the, probably the most difficult part of this, right? We leave it off when we read it during... Um, <laughs> during Christmas time, right? <clears throat> but it is part of the same oracle. As a matter of fact, we leave you off verse one too, because you know, you know, Assyria surrounding, you know, Jerusalem. What does it have to do with us, right? Yeah. Okay. So, now siege. Uh, I'm sorry. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, right? Uh, gather your troops, and it would be literally like something along the lines of uh, daughter troop or troop daughter, however you want to. However, you want to word it there, Um, and that's in that's what appears in the Masoretic text. Now, the Septuagint has something a bit different. They change some uh, going from the Hebrew. You know, Septuagint is the Greek translation, right, of the Old Testament. But coming from the Hebrew, there's a single letter that looks very. These two letters look very similar, right? in our language, would be a D and an R. They look very similar there. And so, if you switch a D for an R, it would say something more like "You are walled around with a wall, O walled daughter." All right? So, I know there's certain translations in the English that would use that, like the NIV uses this, uh, the N-R, the what is it? The NRSV uses that, and there's another one. Uh, I think it's the I think it's just the regular revised standard version. Like the new revised and the older, older revised use, use that. But um, most people believe that the Masoretic text is to be preferred. Uh, the reading is preferred. But if we look at it from the Masoretic reading, right, reading it as troops instead of walls, um, let's see. The, the idea would be muster your troops, O daughter of troops, right? Uh, a troop the the reason he would use the word troop there because we we we're familiar with the word host right army right instead of using the word army a troop is a much smaller entity so the idea he's emphasizing here is the smallness of uh Israel's def- or Judah's defending force against this vast host that's arrayed against them right uh against the horde set against her right so If we prefer the the Septuagintal reading, uh, there's a play on words in that Jerusalem is a walled city, walled in by Assyria's vast host, right? Um, You are walled around with a wall. Now, what is the wall that this city would be walled around with? Well, you know, Jerusalem had a wall, right? The walls of Jerusalem. But they were walled in also by this vast army of, Uh, Sennacherib, that was around them. So it's a play on words. Now, going from the next section, at least to the next part of this verse, with a rod, or scepter, they strike the judge, a ruler of Israel, on the cheek. So, a scepter is a rod of rule, right? And if we remember early on when we were talking about like what Micah was really talking about, what he dealt with a lot, more so than other... um, Prophets was the idea of the plight of the common man, right? Micah was very concerned with dealing with the common man, right? And if we look at this text as it's written, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is, why did Assyria come? What were they doing? Who remembers what Assyria's purpose in invading Judah was? Remember what Judah was doing? At the time, why did Assyria come up against them? Who? Yeah, tribute. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they were trying to. They were trying to stop paying tribute to the king of Assyria. Right. They were a vassal state to Assyria at the time, so they were forced to pay tribute. And they decided to, with the help of Babylon and Egypt implement a tax revolt, right? And Isaiah told Hezekiah specifically not to do that. He said, keep paying the tribute. But Hezekiah was in rebellion, and he decided to team up with Egypt, who he should have never teamed up with, right? God said, don't ever go back there, right? Never, right? So he tried to do that, and then he teamed up with Babylon, and God said, okay, you want to team up with Babylon? Then to Babylon you shall go. You're not going back to Egypt, I promise that. I'm not gonna send you back to Egypt, but you will go to Babylon, right? And we saw that in the last part of the Oracle, right? In verse 10 of chapter four, we see, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, right? That was uh, the punishment that was given to a disobedient Judah. Now, what do we see here? we see um, Assyria coming up, Sennacherib specifically, coming up against Hezekiah, right? That's the idea that's presented here. This siege that's devastating the land of Judah, that's going, um, That's well, how many people got taken from uh, the surrounding region of Judah into captivity? We know there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands, right? And we, when we started, we were going through this. We uh, saw that, well, there were mass graves, right? That, that archaeologists had dug up, like rubbish pits. Uh, as the Assyrian army advanced, they dig rubbish pits, like regular garbage waste. As an army moves forward, you know, there's going to be a lot of trash they develop. We do that. I mean, we have trash days, right? But, so they had a lot of trash. So they used to dig a, dig a hole. But as they went through um, Judah, the land of Judah, they would slaughter tens of thousands of people and just throw them in their rubbish pits. right? And the reason they did that is because Hezekiah was disobedient. Now here's a strong idea of federal headship, right? But in the negative sense. So when the king was disobedient, who suffers? Yeah, the people suffer, right? It's always thus. This is how it always is. When the government is bad, when the government does something wrong, who's the one that suffers? It's the people that suffer, right? So, having uh, leadership is is a very weighty and strong responsibility. So, and um, remember, Micah being overly concerned—not overly, but you know what I mean—heavily uh, concerned with the plight of the common man. Um, he hears emphasizing that it's Hezekiah's fault. The judge of Israel is being struck on the cheek right, with the scepter from Sennacherib. That's what's going on. This this siege is a chastening of the king of Judah. The king of uh, uh, Assyria sent his armies to discipline Hezekiah because he didn't listen to the voice of Isaiah or Micah or any other prophets. So, now, the very next section is tied directly to this. We see the sin of Hezekiah, the sin of the king of Judah, right? And this devastating siege that Assyria is um, bringing into uh, Judah is contrasted. In the very next verse, we have a strong uh, contrasting... um, word, but, right? It's always it's one of the best words in the scripture we say, right? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, you shall come forth for me, one who's to be ruler in Israel. So we have Hezekiah was a good king by all standards, right? He was, we were told that he was a good king, but he made some really bad mistakes and the people suffered for it, right? But God is going to send a ruler, one who's coming, the one who is going to bring peace. right? Because what did Hezekiah bring? Hezekiah brought war. He brought siege. uh, Assyria laid waste to the land of uh, Judah. And after Assyria came Babylon because of uh, Hezekiah's sin, going to Babylon to seek aid instead of going to the Lord. So God promises that one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth, is from of old. Now, let's see. L- l- looking at this text, there was a. This is a commentary I've been really using. Uh, this is very helpful. Probably the most used one is Bruce Waki. He's an excellent uh, Old Testament scholar. Bruce is that? Yeah, Walkie, Yeah, yeah. It's uh yeah, W-A-L-T-K-E, Ruswaki. And there's, he has a quote in here from another commentator, actually. <laughs> this guy, Renaud, um, about this section. Now, what I love about, about this, the idea, we, God's so consistent in how he deals with things like all through the scripture, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And we know that. We've been going through that, going back and forth, going back and forth from Genesis to Revelation, especially as we're going through um, Micah here. But as it's written, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, this is uh, the idea that's presented. is this small little insignificant nothing village. From this nothing village, the great messiah is to come." Right? Now I'm going to read uh, a lengthy quote. I didn't want to write it all down, so I just brought the book. It's easier to do it that way. Right? So, um, looking at this, the, the idea here is is, is I, I enjoyed this. So, let us add for our part that the very close parallel we have noted between Micah 4.8, well let's look at that I suppose, right? And you, O tower of the flock, hill of uh, daughter Zion, to you uh, shall it come, from the former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter, uh, for daughter Jerusalem. Right? So, the idea that kingship's going to come, dominion's going to come to Zion. And how does that happen? Obviously, that happens through the Messiah. So, we see the connection between these two. Um, the city of Jerusalem that is addressed, personified Jerusalem, but is designated with the very name of the city where the population resides. The reason he's going through that, because there was a debate in terms of commentators about um, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, right? In, in some uh, translations, it says Bethlehem, the house of Eph- Ephrathah, right? As if it's a individual house. This is an, an individual house, uh, as if it's an individual family, clan, however you want to say it. You know, um, but most think that it would be a region in Bethlehem, in the area of Bethlehem, a very small, insignificant region there, you know. So we see a personification of Jerusalem, right, daughter Zion. And so here we might see a personification of uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, right, house of Ephrathah, Ephrathah. So that's why he's going through that. Just to give you some uh, background, the same sliding of meaning is found in 5:1, where the city represents a clan, a, a collectivity. Because Micah 4:8 intimates uh, 5:1-2 closely, uh, one can infer that it is really a locality that was addressed and personified. Moreover, the majority of commentators, uh, with the majority of commentators, it is fitting to see in this phrase an allusion to the choice of David. Now, this is really what I wanted to talk about. While I'm reading this, um, it is fitting to see in this phrase an allusion to the choice of David, born in Bethlehem. In particular, it uh, clearly refers to First Samuel 16, which recounts the election and anointing of the future king. Yet this last text mentions explicitly Bethlehem. I'm sorry, Jesse, the Bethlehemite, father of David. Much more, this account underlines the mysterious character. Of the divine initiative that chooses its elect from among the small. Jesse, who made his children the eventual candidates for election, march past, did not even think of mentioning his last born. He was still an adolescent, almost a child. In the eyes of his of the father, who thought according to the views that were too human, uh, such an in- insignificant person could hardly uh, appear as a beneficiary of the divine choice that entailed his bearing very heavy responsibilities. It is, however, he whom God chose. Likewise, in uh, one or in our text, 5.2, uh, the Messiah will come out of the small Bethlehem without uh, very great numerical importance. It seems insignificant in the eyes of the world. The parallelism that bears upon the city and the personage stemming from this city calls for uh, the mention of the city where the first David is born. So the idea that you have this small insignificant person mentioned in Samuel, right? David, coming from this small insignificant city. The parallel there is what is important, what Micah is emphasizing. Bethlehem is so small, so insignificant. And what's fascinating about this is uh, historically this has always been the case. If you think of um let's see. ideas or movements or peoples that have changed the face of the world, right? We could even go down, let's use the New Testament, right? Let's use Christ himself. Christ is the most important person who ever lived. Yes? That's, that's a, a simple uh, given. Now, where did he come from? What's up? Heaven? Ha yeah <laughs> uh, where did the messiah come from <laughs> huh what's that yeah he came from right and who was ruling at the time yeah see where, where did he rule from rome the great rome right if anything that is earth shaking and world changing where's it going to come from it's going to come from rome right no it come from this little dry strip of land out in the middle of nowhere that nobody cared about. It was the equivalent, of, we, we spoke about this a little bit, uh, of flyover country, right? I mean, you, when we were talking about the Greek nations, we had the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, right? And they just used Palestine, and just they, they were trying to make war with each other, right? They had one up in the north, one down in the south, and they would just pass on through. It was literally flyover country, you know, or march through country for them. They'd march right through it and leave devastation in their wake. But that was the idea, it's this nothing bird out in the middle of nowhere, right? And from there, that's where the Messiah came. That's the, where uh, we call uh, Jerusalem and Israel the Holy Land, right? I mean, it became, uh, to, to use a turn of phrase, the uh, Christian Mecca, right? Like there are pilgrimages made from Rome to there from, from that time on, you know? But the idea is that you have this small, insignificant, insignificant, nothing place, and from there, the world changes. And historically speaking, this bears out, right? If you think of, like, I don't know, like, uh, in our day, like, where would be the place of greatest significance in terms of world-changing ideas and everything else? Well, we would think, okay, maybe Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, something like that, right? It never works like that, ever. Historically, it never works like that. And there's a couple of reasons why, I mean, like, just logically, it doesn't work like that. Well, in most places that are, places of power, places of influence and significance, right, culture, whatever else it would be, they are set in their ways. They have a ruling elite, and they don't ever want to give up power. And they have a lot of it there, right? So they have a, what we would call a status quo, right? And it doesn't change. We see this. Oh yes, just throw the bums out. Yeah, right, like, that doesn't work, never. We, we elect somebody who's not part of it, and what happens? He's utterly annihilated, he's destroyed, right? Well, we can't look to Washington to change the face of anything, you know? It always comes from the margins. It always comes from the outside, places that are insignificant, right? If we look at uh, another historical example of this, a great historical example of this is in terms of the Roman Empire in the Christian, uh, in the early, I don't know, two hundreds, three hundreds, etc. You know, in the early church period uh, in the Roman Empire, you have Rome, obviously, still the center of everything. And way out on the fringes of Rome, as far as you can get from Rome in terms of the Roman Empire, you got Ireland, right? The Irish Christian Church, and they were so disconnected, I I exaggerate, it was not two, three hundreds, it wouldn't have been, it would have been closer to the uh, five, six hundreds, you know, in that that time period. Uh, But they're as far away from Rome as you could possibly get. Right. Literally, just so far, so far that the church there didn't even have any ties to Rome. They had their own thing going on, you know. Uh, the, the Pope, it wasn't the same as what we would think of as Pope, at least in terms of the way he uh, influenced the church. But still, he was still considered to be, you know, the head of the the church. But regardless, there was no, there was hardly any influence from from the Roman Church. I mean, people did make. Uh, trips to Rome from there. However, what the Irish Church did was... (sighs) How much time do I have? Okay, I have have a few minutes. Good. So, what the Irish Church did, what made them so significant was, at least that early period, they came from... You you know the story of like St. Patrick and everything, right? Uh, Those who were converted the most were the Druids, believe it or not, right? Most of the converts came from, came from the, the ranks of the Druids, and then from them came the common people. They you know, generally follow what their leaders did in terms of uh, their spiritual leaders being the, the, the Druids. Now, do we know anything about the Druids? Who knows anything about the Druids, what they did, how they practiced, what they were. What were the Druids? I mean, we think of magic and all this other stuff, right? Weird stuff with the Druids, like, you know, human sacrifice and all that, right? Right, don't we, generally? What what do you think of when you think of druids? Like skinny guys with face paint, yeah. All right. uh, just really weird nature lovers, yeah. But uh, no, actually they had a very significant role in Irish culture. As a matter of fact, in order to become a druid, one would have to study about twenty plus years, right, in order just to enter the ranks of the druids because they were the suppositories of all of Irish culture. All of Irish culture came through them, like they uh, had to memorize everything about Irish culture and society, and yeah, there were human sacrifices they did sacrifice to uh, um, men to the uh, equivalent of Thor, etc. you know whatever the Irish name for that god would have been i can't remember off the top of my head, but regardless. so them being the suppositories of all of Irish culture and all of Irish knowledge and, and you know, the accumulation over the centuries of all of this, this wealth of information, well, they were uniquely suited to, well, developing a Christian culture. And how they did that, and Christian learning in particular, because remember, they were used to studying. They would study for 20 plus years before they even became a Druid, right? So they were uniquely suited to study the scriptures and develop this unique Christian culture. So they would study, and they were—they weren't. Uh, how do I put this? Uh, study was something that they did by nature. They just—it's what you do. So they studied and studied and studied the scriptures. I mean, the ideas of uh, like monasteries and stuff like that really uh, started with them. But when we talk about monasteries, I'm not talking about like uh, like hermits and things like that. And they were—they. Druids acted as judges for the people, so they, they would come together collectively to work and to study to uh, and and in order to do this, they needed texts of scripture right they needed a lot of a lot of these so they would come together in a collective and sit down and write out the text and write out the text and they would go around and they would teach the people the, the text and they would teach the people and develop and they develop this very unique society and culture so If you like the idea of a seminary, if you like that, you could thank the Irish Christian Church, right? The ancient Irish Christian Church, because they became a place. uh, The Ireland became a center of learning, of Christian learning, throughout the Roman Empire, right? They they brought that into the Greater Roman Empire, uh, Holy Roman Empire, uh, the Christian Roman Empire, not the you know Caesar, but that idea. Now that's so common to us of of study and learning and uh, the way they the way that we study the scriptures those things come from the Irish Church which was on the fringes of the Roman Empire you know and it literally changed the world I mean the reason that we all have codices the way we do is because of the Irish Christian Church the reason that we have seminaries the way that we do is because of the Irish the universities period even secular ones, is because of the Irish Christian Church and the way that they uh, studied. Right? So that came on the from the fringes of society. And so it is even here, right? These small little insignificant nothing town, right? From there will come one who will change everything. God, What were you gonna say? Well and to follow the template of human nature as we know it At the same time they were encouraging study and yeah. building that world of study and that that is necessary. Rome was probably mocking it, uh, discouraging If they even knew anything about it. If they even mm. knew. The information didn't travel as fast, you know. But yeah, the idea of common people learning, having a center of learning, um, really comes from, from that region, you know. So. Let's look, uh, let's go on a little bit from there. So I think we could grasp that, that idea. Well, I should actually, and we only have five minutes, so I might as well just continue on with this. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, when I use this word, talking about that text, when I say mythic, I don't mean that in the fictitious mythic sense, okay, just so, just so we're clear. But there's this idea of this mythic past, this primeval past, right, that, that, goes beyond knowledge into the realm of myth. And when I, again, when I use that word myth, I don't mean um, fictitious. I mean uh, mysterious, mystical, however you want to say it, you know, a, a past that's beyond their comprehension or understanding. So uh, that's when, it's, when it says from ancient days, that's, that's what that, that, that primeval past would, would be a time before there was any knowledge, right? So, but before we before we do that, talking, uh, applying a little bit of this uh, to to our our day, what's the what's the significance of of Bethlehem Ephrathah, who is too little to be among the clans of Judah? How does that impact us? How what do we think about? Uh, how can we apply that, or how should we even just think about the world in general because of this, the, you know, idea that comes. From scripture and bears out in history, time and time again. Good. Uh, humility. Yeah, humility. But I was—I meant more specifically, like we look to Albany, Washington, wherever to solve our problems, right? Don't we? Always. It's like when—when when there's a—who do we cry to? <laughs> we cry to Caesar, like all the time. You know, we—we we, we go to the places of power. We have some problems right now. Obviously, we have people losing their jobs because of this vaccine nonsense, um, you know, my wife being one, Warren being another, and there's others. So there's all kinds of issues that are going on. And we look, we say, oh, we have to go cry to our governor and this and that and the other thing. It's like, well, really, where world-changing things come from is not the places of power, not the centers of power. Our focus shouldn't be in Washington or Albany for us or. Wherever it would be. It should be on the margins, you know? Some small podunk town upstate or something, you know, in terms of New York or, or even like, you know, some midwestern who knows what. like in Moscow, Idaho. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, that's another one. Yeah, very good. In terms of reshaping and changing the world. You have this center of power and they are so set in their ways. They're not gonna change, you know. I mean Jesus didn't even in terms of Israel, Jesus didn't even come from Jerusalem. That was what the Pharisees' biggest gripe against him was. This Galilean from Galilee? I mean what did what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come from Galilee? It's like, what the heck? You know, again this little podunk town out there. He's got a, he talks funny. He's got a weird accent and everything, you know. So imagine like, you know, you got some guy from Louisiana coming and changing the world, you know, with this really thick accent. Hardly understand a word the man says, but it changes everything. That's how it works, generally speaking, you know, socially speaking. So, uh, yeah, we shouldn't look to places of power ever for anything (laughs) in truth. We're told that explicitly don't put your trust in princes. Never, never. You put your trust in in, in the Lord and do the work where you are, you know, uh, or if you're driven out, then you don't need to go to the places of power you know you don't cry to Caesar you don't do any of that you just go to some place where everyone will leave you alone and you can do the work right that's what uh that's what the idea there is and you know trust that God is faithful and that he'll bless the fruit of your hands you know you do it your work faithfully and then who knows maybe you'll be the one to change everything right that's God uses small and significant things. David, I mean, I'm not saying that Jesus was small and insignificant, but in the eyes of the world he was you know this homeless, crazy preacher in in the wilderness of Israel, challenging Caesar. like what what? you know <laughs> that's how that's how God does things. That's how God works. All right. Any comments, thoughts, questions about this? Next we'll get into. You know, who's coming forth is from days of old, from ancient days, obviously. You know, here we see that the Messiah is, is not necessarily of uh, this world, is he? No, he's, he's from some other place. He's from some other, well, I shouldn't really say place, from other, some other time. Um, so here we see that Messiah is more than just a man. But regardless, any other thoughts, comments, questions about what we discussed? Okay, very good. Hopefully, everything made sense. I thought we were going to get through six verses, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. I should know better. (laughs) We made it through one and a half. All right, excellent. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word and how it shows us how you work in the world, Lord God. We thank you, Father, that you're a faithful God who keeps covenant, loves his people, Father. You do discipline your people with the rod of men, as you say, Lord God. And we know that uh, we are in a time of, of discipline, Lord. And we pray, Father, that, that we'd be a repentant people, a people that um, doesn't turn to Caesar, that doesn't turn to the state for anything, Lord God, but trust in you wholeheartedly, Father God, who loves you, uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord, who honors you in everything, that we do, Lord. We pray, Father, that as we seek to worship you today, that you truly would be honored, that you truly would be glorified and magnified, um, that as we come to you in prayer, that you would hear us, Lord, that you would uh, receive our prayers and supplications, that you would receive our praises in adoration, Father, in song, Lord. And also, uh, as we listen to your word uh, preached, Father, that it would be as if you are speaking uh, directly to our hearts, Father, and you would use the word that Anthony uh, delivers, that it would mold us and shape us and, and uh, make us more like your son, Father God, so that we might live uh, faithful and um, devout lives, Lord, and we pray as we partake of the supper, Lord, that you would see Christ in us, remember us in him, Lord, um, and that we might Remember uh, the one who died on our behalf, the one who was from this small uh, nothing town, Lord God, but you used to save the world, Father. We thank you for those great and, uh, again, precious promises and deep truths, Lord, about our great and awesome Messiah, Father. We thank you that we can be counted as his brethren